0: Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you would open up this portion of your Word in a way that would cause us to have eyes to see and appreciate the greatness of Jesus Christ, the one whose birth we are celebrating, the one whose first Advent is truly one of the most important events of, of human history that's been recorded. Lord, teach us during this time, we pray, and may we have eyes to see Christ, we pray in His name, amen. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a conversation, maybe it might be a little too generous of a term, maybe you're on the receiving end of a a long narrative that a mother or a father is telling you about their amazing child that they have and what that child has recently accomplished? And they go on and on, they may have, I'm sure you've, you've heard them say these kind of things, or maybe you've been the one who has been on the uh, the narrative giving end of things where you're telling someone else about how your child has accomplished such and such in sports, or your child earned such and such GPA uh, in their academic pursuits, or your child got accepted into such and such university, uh, or your child was promoted to some Uh, level of job in some very well-known company and on and on it goes or maybe your child has done well in the special olympics it could be all kinds of things you hear people talk about with their children and of course many parents when they leave the maternity ward of the hospital with their newborn baby they also leave with a lifetime of bragging rights right it comes with the territory I've been thinking about that, how different it would have been for Mary. Mary learns news that she is going to be uh, bearing a son, a son that just doesn't make any sense to her how that possibly could be true, that she could be be pregnant. Here this unwed mother-to-be learns this news, and initially I think she must have concluded in her mind for just a moment or two I may never have anything to brag about with this child I'm about to bear. Because again, think about it. The events surrounding the birth of this firstborn child of Mary were clouded by a fog of scandal, of shame, of fear. Estimated by most commentators to be of the age of around 13, 12, maybe 14 years of age. Here's Mary betrothed to this gentleman called Joseph and she is told by this angel that she will conceive and bear a child even though she has never been physically intimate with anyone ever including this guy named Joseph the man to whom she was scheduled and uh, set to be married within the next year her response to this news was likely one of what confusion bewilderment and so it's not too surprising verse 34 of chapter 1 is it she had questions she says how can this be i'm a virgin how can this be and the brief profound answer provided by the angel there well how's it going to happen the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of who the most high a name for God recorded many times in the Hebrew Scriptures, speaking of the one who was supreme, the one who is, there is no one greater than the Most High God. He will overshadow you. He is going to make this happen. Now, the answer that she receives is theologically accurate. That's exactly what happened. But I don't think Mary's concerns were fully addressed, obviously. She pondered and she pondered this life-changing intrusion into her in, intrusion of God into her future plans. And in order to gain her willing participation and her sense of buying into this whole thing and to celebrate the wonders of what was happening, the angel makes clear more and more about who this baby is and will be. Because you remember now, giving birth to this baby is really, for Mary will bring her suffering it will bring her shame, it will bring her heartache for many, many, many years. And so the angel goes on to say, listen here, Mary, this baby is going to be unique. This baby is going to be, notice what it says there in the text, great. Did you catch that? He says there in verse 32 we're not talking about an average baby your ordinary baby seven pounds and two ounces whatever you know they talk about the ordinary child being born average child her baby is off the charts great and no one is ever going to come close to equaling the nature of this child the work of this child the position and power and authority of this child and his moral character Because Mary knows that she's going to face much anguish of heart. Her family's going to face all this public scorn, all of this ridicule, rejection, I would imagine. And so the angel provides several titles, several names for this little one-of-a-kind child. And in this way, I believe, he is trying to give to her a sense of the greatness of this child so that she'll understand it is worth it. It is worth it to go through all that she will go through that she's called upon to endure. This child is worthy of that. And therefore, Mary is given three reasons why her firstborn baby, this virgin birth, will be the greatest baby ever to be born in the human race. Follow me now as we look at our three points here. Jesus is great in that he has a unique nature and unique work. Now, I could go in 20 directions on the greatness of Jesus in His nature and work, but I'm going to focus this morning on one of the obvious indications of His greatness. If you follow the life of Jesus in His later years, it was His teaching. He never wrote a book during His earthly lifetime, but the one book that records His teaching Year after year and year after year and year after year, even though no one really seems to make much of a significant observation of this, it is the best selling book of all time. And in the Gospels, again and again, those who listened to Jesus speak, whether it was individuals or whether it was crowds and multitudes of large crowds of people who listened to him teaching over and over, the answer or the response that they made to his teaching was they were amazed they were awed, and they were astonished people were blown away by what he said he taught with as one who had authority he didn't just stand up and say now folks listen here research proves that I'm right I've got lots of things I can uh, draw upon to show you that what I'm saying Is reliable and you can count on it. And therefore, that's why you should do what I say. Jesus doesn't say that. He never appealed to other experts. He never appealed to other rabbis. He never appealed to the earlier generations to try to say, okay, now this is why you should be listening to me because of XYZ, or I know this person, or I agree with that expert. No, he spoke with divine authority. What did he say? Jesus says, I have done this. I've washed your feet, for example. Now, you ought to do the same. He speaks with authority. You need to be doing this. And why would he speak with such authority? Well, because he wasn't just inspirational. He wasn't just giving positive messages to make you feel good. Jesus spoke as one who was inspired by God. His words were God's words. We read in John chapter 8, Jesus saying, I have many things to speak concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. He's saying, I am from God and I'm speaking on behalf of God. That's unique. That truly is unique. And then Jesus' teaching was inclusive. I find it amazing that He he would speak into the lives and to the uh, crowds of people who were well-educated, the people who were sophisticated, the elites of that society, the people who were well-to-do, well-connected. And then He speaks also to the uneducated people, the women of that society, the children of that society, and the nobodies who were the poor, and in speaking to these crowds, he would speak on such wide topics. He would cover such a, a breadth of heart issues. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you read in that short amount of, of, of content, in one message, he talks about the struggle of the heart with greed and anxiety. He deals with the, 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 the heart, struggles of the heart of, of, of sexual lust. He deals with hypocrisy and pride, all in that one sermon. And he spoke with such power and conviction. It's one thing to speak on such top topics, but he doesn't avoid difficult topics. Like so often they do in today's world, we want to be careful not to offend people, and so we, we very carefully couch our words. But Jesus, I might remind you, Warned against the torments and the misery of hell. He pointed out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. And why did he do so? Because not one, no no one could dismiss the things he said because there was never found in him any form of hypocrisy at all. His teaching was always characterized by integrity. He was never wrong, never misleading, and never proven unreliable. So you're saying, okay, so what? If the one who was born is so great and his teaching is so great, it is unmatched in its greatness, I'll tell you a so what. The so what is we ought to be immersing ourselves in his teaching. We ought to keep reading it and pondering it and meditating upon it and going back and digging deeper into it, trying to understand the context, the culture a little better, doing some reading up on some of the additional notes you can find online or in your study Bible. I came across this helpful quote from Luther, Martin Luther. He said, The Bible, which I would then just say Jesus' teaching, Jesus' teaching is alive. He says, "It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me." Have you been reading Jesus's teaching, or the explanation and 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 the uh, fully exposition or or expounding of Jesus' teaching in the in the epistles or the the, the Predictions about Jesus, the foreshadowing of Jesus in the Old Testament, has it been making an an impact in your life, running after you, grabbing hold of you? One more quote, if you don't mind, from Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors. He recently passed away and is now in heaven. He says, don't believe everything you think. I'm going to pause for a second. Don't believe everything you think. Why is that? Okay, this is my comments now. It's because our thoughts are oftentimes so erroneous and out of focus and overly focused on ourselves and distorted. Bridges says, don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the Word. What a great quote. What a great quote. What a shame if we celebrate the birth of Jesus and the greatest teacher has ever come and we never read His Word. You say, well, I've, I've pretty much done such a poor job the last couple days or the last couple weeks, last month, two months. It may be a while since you picked up your Bible. Pick it up. Don't let that hinder you from gaining the wonders of realizing Jesus can speak and does speak to you. Through His Word, it's powerful. We need it. And it's changing. Alright, uh, the other reason He's, he's uh, also great is to think about Jesus' miracles. I don't need to dwell on this too long, but I mean, we could go into 16 directions with this too. But in reading the Gospels, it's, it's a little hard, isn't it, to sort of dismiss the works of power that Jesus performed? I mean, think about it. What He did... They're not like stunts that we see performed by modern-day magicians. You know, you think about it now. It looks quite impressive when you watch what magicians can do. But those are all sleights of hand. They're all illusions. They're, They're clearly not claiming to do something supernatural. They're just doing things that are impressively, amazingly creative to make it seem like that's impossible. But obviously there are answers and there are some... Sometimes you'll see a television show or somewhere on YouTube, they show you how they do it. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus merely spoke and he stilled the stormy sea and the winds. I've said some things when the wind was blowing. It wasn't very pleasant. I was blowing leaves the other day, trying to get leaves to go a certain way, into the woods. I just blow them into the woods. I don't even bag them anymore. Blow them into the woods. And I'm blowing with this blower, which is a great way to do it. And guess what? The wind is blowing them right back at me. So what do I do? I'm trying to speak to the wind. It's futile. It's a waste of time, right? Here is Jesus merely saying, peace be still. And calmness at that moment. Here's Jesus speaking at the gravesite of someone whose body has a putrid smell to it. The smell of death. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And here the dead body comes to life and begins to try to get out of all of the wrappings of all the spices held against that stinking body. Jesus demonstrated power over evil spirits when he cast out the demons, commanding them to depart. And unlike so many faith healers, quote-unquote, today who supposedly heal people, quote-unquote, people who say, oh, I've got a pain in my back. Oh, it's been bothering me forever. Or see, people who claim to have what? Uh, I, I just don't seem to be able to hear as well as I can, even though they're talking to this guy and they're interacting with him. Or people who claim to have some sort of leg weakness. They claim that, that you know, they heal these people. Okay. But look what Jesus did. He restored the vision of the blind. He made the lame to walk. And not, not only to walk, but what? They start jumping up and down. He Not only healed a handful of individuals who sought Him out and who merely touched Him and they were healed not like he's looking for you know certain people i'm just going to deal with certain ones that i like and i'm going to make sure that they're following in a certain uh, category of of ailments that i'll heal no he didn't get screened beforehand these people just walk up and all of a sudden they're healed and touching him no one has greater power to heal and to restore than jesus the son of the most high Son of the Most High, a title that refers to the supremacy of God in all things. You see, God is above all others. And when demons encountered Jesus, when evil spirits knew that they were now going to be up against Jesus in a confrontation, what would they say to Him? They would recognize that He has absolutely absolute authority over them. They would call Him Most High. You can look it up, Luke, Luke chapter 8, verse 28. And the final thing I want to just point out about Jesus' greatness in terms of His nature is just to point out the simple fact is that Jesus is the same essence as God the Father. He's the same essence. He is the Son of God, Son of the Most High. All of my children have the wonderful gift of my DNA in them. Which brings them tremendous physical uh, beauty, and <laughs> intelligence, and crooked teeth that are crowded, and poor vision, and corrective lenses they'll have to wear, and all you know, all these other things. They have moles that come from my side of the family. We have a, whatever. My kids have my DNA. But think about Jesus. He has the same essence as the Father. And turn with me in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. I just want to show you this one verse that to me is just absolutely profound. It is a a verse that you ought to underline in your Bible and highlight the fact that Jesus is not merely a human being. He is clearly given the title of the Most High God over and over and over in Scripture. Look at Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Paul says, We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing... Of the glory of whom? The glory of our great God. We're looking for the glory of our great Savior. Who is that person? Who is the great God? It is Jesus Christ. He is the all-glorious One. It is Jesus who is the one who is to be worshipped. We are to bow before Him and yield our lives before Him. Came across the quote again from Evelyn Underhill. If Jesus were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. May your view of Jesus be one who is what? Capal, capable of doing the impossible. Right? Doesn't he say that in the text? Nothing will be impossible for God. Secondly, when we talk about greatness of Jesus, He had a unique position as the Supreme King. A position that is unique as a Supreme King. The greatness of Jesus' power that He exerts is that He has the power to exercise absolute dominion over all of His realm. Notice that the angel said there in verse 32, in the latter part of that verse, chapter 1, The angel says, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It's one thing to have the title of being a king, but it's a lot different to have the title and the absolute authority to bring about your reign and your rule. I mean, I hate to say it, folks, but if you're part of the royal lineage in the Windsor, family tree and you know in England and you're part of that family that's uh, you know Queen Mary's offspring I mean you could be a king you could be a queen what do you get with it other than wealth that you're going to leave all that behind too but I mean you have no power you have no authority to do really anything anymore but here's Jesus he has absolute authority to bring about his reign and rule he was born as God's ruler who came to establish a kingdom unlike any other kingdom in the world. His kingdom is not expanded by violence. It is not expanded by manipulation or being coerced, which so many kingdoms are in this world. His kingdom does not adopt the methods and methodologies of the world's kingdoms where you give favors to the people who are the insiders, the people who have connections, the people who have uh, you know, some sort of inside road of finding that they get better treatment than everybody else. Or it's the fact that bribery is the system that gets you what you need, is you have to offer a bribe somehow to, to get advancement or get what you need or get whatever from the government, from the powers to be. Or where it tends to be the normal that there's injustice for people who don't have power. The powerless, the weak, the unconnected, disconnected. They're the ones that have to deal with what? It's just not fair. It's just a, a ripoff in life. Instead, Jesus' kingdom is spread by love. His kingdom is spread through the gospel ministry. His kingdom is a, it will emancipate people who are enslaved in a kingdom of darkness. One of the things that we ought to be celebrating is the fact that with Jesus is coming, and he comes at night, isn't it interesting, he's born at night, is it speaks of the light of, here is God's king coming into a domain of darkness, The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom that Satan has been running in this world, the ruthless tyrant who loves to steal, kill, and destroy, the Bible says. Satan's kingdom is characterized by what? Deception, distortion, and damnation. There's no justice, there's no equality under the laws of Satan. The devil cares only for himself. And rather than bringing about an ordering of people so that evil is constrained, that good is promoted. Satan's kingdom always is trying to throw off all moral restraint. Do whatever you want. Whatever you want to do is okay. Satan promotes the lie that his subjects, which are really unregenerate people, are the most fulfilled people in the world, and they are most satisfied when they get their way and when they can be their own little mini kings, have their own little kingdoms. What a lie. Thankfully, the one who was born to Mary is a king who is unlike all other kings, he will one day vanquish the devil and His kingdom of darkness, and through the gospel, Jesus delivers His people from the domain of darkness. He transfers them into His kingdom, where they are citizens of an awesome and wonderful righteous king, and that they will enjoy forgiveness of sins, and they will enjoy the fact that Jesus is going to break all this terrible curse of sin and all of its manifestations. I came across a quote in the book, what is the Gospel, by Greg Gilbert. And he says that Jesus' incarnation was the launching of God's full and final counter-offensive against all sin, death, and destruction that had entered the world when Adam fell. Now you say, well, where is that kingdom? <laughs> Why don't we see it more clearly? The world's still messed up big time. even as our own personal lives are messed up big time. Well, Jesus' kingdom is gradually being established. It doesn't happen instantaneously. One day, it is now in force, it's now begun, but it's not in its fullness of its manifestation yet. One day, it will bring about the proper ordering of the world under Jesus' dominion. One day, all the other rulers and powers... Will fall before Jesus, and there's coming a day when no one will oppose him. He will vanquish all of his enemies. And as Gilbert says, that glorious moment when everything in the world is set right, when justice will finally be done, when evil is overthrown forever, and righteousness established once and for all. That's what God is promising us through his King, Jesus Christ. I believe Mary and Joseph represent thousands and millions of people whose dignity and rights are trampled by brutal people, rulers who are more interested in themselves like the Roman Caesars, where their citizens are just mere pawns of the state. And you know, the Roman Empire exerted tremendous dominion over those it conquered. It had the power to tax their subjects, and that's why Mary and Joseph were what? On the move that night. Why? They have to go through a census, they have to move. Why? For taxes. Even they couldn't escape the IRS of their day. But they have power to tax them, and they also had power to exert pressure upon the people of the Roman Empire to what? to bend their knee, to render obeisance to Caesar by mandating that all of their subjects say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the greatest. No wonder God's people have been longing for God's ruler to take up the throne of David. And Maybe you're like the Jews that lived under different forms of depression over the years. Aren't you yearning for someone who will reign in power and authority to enforce righteous laws, to hold at bay all the forms of evil in this world? Don't you longing for that? Don't you yearn for someone who is preeminent above all other rulers who will abolish all dictators and despots? See, Jesus' reign is not going to come to an end. It's not like he's going to build it up and build it up and then it just crashes in the final chapter. His reign, will not he will not be dethroned. He will not resign. He's not going to be replaced or somehow removed from power. He will reign. What does it say in Revelation? In that great hallelujah chorus? He will reign forever and ever. I wonder how many of us reacted to the death of Fidel Castro, who came to power in 1959, two years after I was born, as prime minister of Cuba. Then he was the president of Cuba from 76 to 2008. He was a Marxist-Leninist, ushering in all this transformation in Cuba, a one-party socialist state. That's what he wanted it to be. His ruthless power, however, did not last. Are things right in Cuba now? No. But guess what? He's not there anymore. It's not his little realm. It's not his little kingdom. It doesn't belong to him anymore. He's gone. He has succumbed to death. And all his brutal treatment of this political dissidence is no longer something he oversees. He's now standing before the king and facing the judgment for all that he brought about and all that he's done to defy the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yes, it was true there are many who tried to assassinate him over the years, but despite his longevity and his reign, his rule is over, period, that will never be said of Jesus. His kingdom will never end. You say, well, yeah, but I'm, as a person who has believed upon Christ and who has repented of sin and who have aligned ourselves to be a loyal citizen of Jesus Christ, why is it so difficult in this world? Why is it so challenging to confess Jesus as Lord and and be faced with such mockery and disdain? Well, it's nothing new, right? First century Christians were accused of sedition as if they were somehow claiming disloyalty to their government when they confess Jesus as Lord. Many of them suffered for that, terribly so. And in today's world, if we say Jesus is Lord, people look at us and they react to us and view us as intolerant. That we are a people who are bigoted and we reject pluralism. Where's the hope? In the last book that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in The Lord of the Rings, there comes a point in that story where the key heroes of the story have been traveling thousands of miles and they come to the end and the goal. They're in this evil land and they're finally there to do what they need to do for various reasons. They think that all of a sudden everything seems lost. They are at the point where they've almost lost hope. And Tolkien writes in that one darkest moment when sam looks into the sky he says tolkien says far above the mountains in the west the night sky was still dim and pale and there peeping among the clouds high up in the mountains sam saw a white star twinkle for a while and the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him for like a shaft clear and cold The thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow, that is the capital S, all of the evil empire that was uh, formed against them was a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. What's he saying? At that moment of those characters, we were ready to give up. They all of a sudden had fresh courage to press on through the darkness. And therefore, the hope of knowing that what? We ourselves have many pressing Matters upon us, various forms of sufferings, injustices, trials, difficulties. Yes, they are a small and passing thing. Why? Because someday our king is coming back. He's going to make things right. He's going to make things right. It will seem as if nothing compared to the glory when our king finally returns. Well, let me bring one more quick point to your attention. This is so obvious. It almost doesn't need to be repeated, but... Another unique thing about Jesus found in this text in verse 35 is his unique moral character. You notice what it says there in verse 35? The angel points to him out to Mary, who's baffled, The holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Jesus is sinless. He is holy. Of whom has it ever been said, this person is sinless? This person is without fault. My mom said a lot of nice things to me during my lifetime. She never said, son, you are perfect. You are without fault. I can find nothing in you that needs to be uh, corrected. Sorry, never heard that. What person has never told a lie? What person has never had a bad attitude? What person do you know of that's never spoken an unkind word, never acted in a selfish manner? Who can you point to when you were growing up that you knew this person never need to be corrected, never need to be disciplined? What living person can you point to who has never taken something that was not theirs? Who was a child always obeyed his, his or her parents, always exhibited self-restraint, always was kind to everyone around them? Who, is, who do you know that would use their words only to build up other people around them rather than use their words to belittle, criticize, or condemn? Or as commonly called today, who can become a person who is is um, what's the term when you are accused of using things online and you are Um, No, you're bad. Anyway, you're like like a brute person around the people around you. Bullying, thank you. Couldn't say it. Walter and I both have had senior moments today. (laughs) I guess I'm not perfect in that way either. Think about it. Those of us who've had the blessing of raising children, what an education that is. We know our children. We saw them up and close, as much as we tried, as much as we attempted to give them the wisest of counsel, giving them instruction, helping them understand, here's what you need to do. Don't do this, do this. They never met up to those instructions. (laughs) They didn't follow the things that we told them, just like I didn't follow the things that my parents told me. We've seen our children follow our example where oftentimes we withhold the truth. We oftentimes will shift the blame away from ourselves and we'll make the situation as if the blame is somewhere else. It belongs on somebody else's shoulders. They're the ones who caused this. And we stubbornly often will refuse to do what's right. Thank God that when Jesus was tested in that wilderness for 40 days, Satan threw at him all sorts of tests, all sorts of temptations. And the Hebrews reminds us that yes, Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet he never, ever sinned. He was unique. And notice in your notes it says, Jesus was unique in that he was able not to sin. That's unique, that's one of a kind. And what's great about this is that Jesus doesn't sit there and just stand ready to condemn us. He stands ready as a uniquely prepared person to help us who struggle with sin. That He is one who is, he knows that we are struggling with our feeble attempts to resist sin, and so He's able to forgive those who fail and yield to temptation. He's able to provide us mercy and grace when we come to Him asking for help. Doesn't just condemn us and wag his finger at us and lecture us. And he's praying for us, Hebrews 7. He's continually praying for us that the gospel will lessen the appeal of sin in our lives. He's praying that the wonders of his self giving love, a love that was providing a willingness to take upon himself. What we deserved as our punishment on that cross, a love that says, I will do and take what you, absorb what you deserve so that you can enjoy what I deserve, that we might not be enslaved in sin. Oh, to think about the wonders of His love that can liberate us to do what? To love Him in return, to be satisfied in Him. Only His love can do that. And Jesus then rose from the dead empower people like us with new life i got one thing to say jesus alone is truly great let's pray our father as we reflect on jesus we know we just begun to reflect upon the wonders of our savior we could be here for the rest of the day and still just begin to note and meditate upon the many ways in which jesus is so great But lord i pray that you would take some of these things we've been thinking about this morning and to that heart of the one who's here today feeling the weight of guilt and shame before you who only can see their failings and sin. Lord, show them, we pray, the greatness of their Savior, Jesus, that He is praying for them, that He's offered Himself for them, that He has a love for them that they need to respond to, a love that will lift them out of their own failings, that they might see the glories of His wondrous love for them, a love that heals and restores and forgives those who truly repent and confess their sins. Father, for those of us who have become somewhat distracted and who are not listening to the teaching of their great Savior and, and rabbi, Lord, I pray that you would develop in us a heart that just longs to continually be taught your word and to read your word, to meditate upon it, to hide it in our hearts, that we might be a people who are more and more in awe of you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, until that day comes and your kingdom in all of its greatness finally unfolds, we pray that we might know that hope that no matter how dark it gets in this world, no matter how much evil prevails, no matter how much injustice continues to be sown in this world, Lord, we pray that we might find hope in that glorious thought that our King is the King of kings and Lord of lords. His kingdom will never end. Give us that hope, we pray, so that we might serve you, so we might share the gospel, so that we might be a part of your kingdom until you come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.